Hey guys, you're listening to Tea Time with Tay, a podcast series where I sit down, like I have a choice, brew some tea, and then spill it. Let's start the show. I am back, and this is the second episode of Tea Time with Tay. I'm. I I need to start by saying, an overwhelming, from the bottom of my heart, thank you. The response from the very first podcast was incredible. Hearing from people who I used to train with, hearing from former coaches who told me that my story and me explaining things helped to give a great perspective on an accident they've heard in passing, but never really understood the full story. Um, from my friends, I actually just finished listening to this pod, the first podcast with my mom and my godmother, and we all sat around the table and listened to it. And it was an extremely emotional experience. Obviously, my mom, more than any other person, would understand what I've been through but even for her she was like oh my gosh that's a detail I didn't know oh I didn't realize x y and z and um it was a really emotional but great feeling uh to do this and again the response has just been so great and I'm so grateful for all of you who have listened to it um this is going to be the official part two uh, of Let Me Introduce Myself. So please, if you are, if you can, just sit back and stay with me as I try to take you on this journey that I've been through with, uh, with me. Today I am drinking David's Tea Peppermint Amour, which is just a peppermint tea, so obviously it's pretty generic. But I actually love it a lot. I drink this probably the most. Um, I would give this a solid five out of five teacups. And it will be my drink of choice for the day. So let's get right back into where I left off last time. On the first podcast, again, if you haven't heard it yet, you can find it on my website, taylorlnwrites.com. I ended it off in the ambulance. And I just had told my mom, I was scared and I didn't want to be in a wheelchair. Funny <laughs> out of the foresight, I'm actually sitting in a wheelchair right now recording this. Um, but after arriving at the hospital, I was immediately taken from the ambulance into the emergency room. While in the emergency room, this was the most hectic experience of my entire life. Being a fan of Grey's Anatomy and lots of other medical shows that have come and gone, such as House, which was one of my favorite. And actually, we used to, if anyone has ever seen the show House, the guy, he is such, the main doctor, is such a polarizing, narcissistic, yet brilliant doctor who, uh, he's a lot to handle. And it's funny because we used to call the coach who suggested the skill and got me into the situation. Uh, we used to nickname him House. So if you want a deeper description of how he was as a person, that would be a really great comparison. And a nickname we actually gave him, myself as well as many other gymnasts. Uh, going into the emergency room, there is so many people around me. I would say there's about 10 people from the ambulance to just taking me into the emergency room. And immediately what started happening was they started to ask me all of these questions from my right side, from my left side. I had a doctor asking me what happened. I had what they called a nursing support, I believe was the term for her. And because I was 14 and I was taken to a children's hospital they have these people there to help 
guide you through the process of what is happening. Because when you're so young, it is overwhelming to have that many people swarming around you. And she was kind of like my my safe go-to. If I had any questions, I could ask her. She was walking me through the process of saying, this is what's going to happen next. The doctor is going to go and get these tests done for you. Um, I really wish I knew the name of that lady because she was such a calming, calming, comforting, almost like mother-like figure during a time where I was crying and scared and lost. Um, Lying on the stretcher, one of the first things I remember is them going and getting a pair of scissors and saying, we're going to have to cut off your gym suit. And I said, no, can you please just lightly take this off? I was very protective. I was like, I don't want people seeing my body. I felt so exposed. I couldn't understand why they couldn't just take it off normally, why they had to cut it off of me. But upon reflection, obviously, if they were to move me too much, I could have hurt myself even more. Even though I was in a neck brace and they had my body very immobilized, I had to keep as still as possible because they didn't want my broken bones in my neck to shift. And I think everyone was aware of the fact that I had broken my neck, except for me. When I was younger, and even still now, I think a lot of people have the misconception that if you break your neck, that you, it's an automatic death sentence. I definitely at that age thought that. I thought, how is it possible for you to break your bones in your neck, which holds up your head, and still be able to not only live, but have fully coherent conversations? I was very sound. Um, I remember everything I could have full conversations. There was no concussion. There was nothing. So the thought that I could have possibly broken my neck was the last thing that was on my mind. I thought maybe if anything, I'd sprained my neck whiplash, but to have broken it, that's impossible. So that's why when they were cutting my gym suit off and performing all these tests on me, I felt Like they were kind of crazy. I couldn't understand it. So they began to cut it off. And here is a 14-year-old completely exposed and naked, having 10 people, I believe there were students working with them too, just observing what was going on. And I had never felt more vulnerable at that moment in my entire life. I continued to just cry and just kept asking for my mother. And the third time I had asked for my mother to know if she was there, I looked to the nursing support and uh, she said that your mother mother and father are here. Now, for people who do not know me, they wouldn't know that I don't have a relationship really with my father at all. He was always someone, and I'm not, I don't think it's necessary to go very deep into that right now because that's not what this podcast is about. But uh, he was someone who, he is someone, he's still alive, who has never really been a consistent figure in my life. And myself, along with millions of people out there, um, I was raised by a single mom, and my mother is truly the champion in my life. She is my biggest supporter, my biggest cheerleader. She would go to bat for me, and she is such a strong and incredible woman. If you know her, you know this to be true. She is the, oh, I could go on for days about my mother. She is the ultimate, ultimate mother you would ever want or ask for. She was more of a mother and more of a father to me than my father. I think even has the capacity to be. So I do not by any means 
feel slighted for the fact that I don't didn't have a father figure necessarily growing up because my mother was so amazing and I'm so grateful for her. Um, so to know that my father was there was, I thought she had made, I thought the nursing coordinator or the nursing support had made a mistake because again, he wasn't really a part of my life, but, uh, I found out later that my mom on the way to sick kids had phoned him to tell him that I was obviously very hurt. I don't think she knew how bad, obviously, how bad I was hurt. And maybe if this was a thought that this might be my last day, that he should know, which obviously he should. So uh, he showed up. And when, again, when she said that your father is here, I looked at her and I was like, are you sure? And she said, yes, I'm very sure. And that is when I kind of just closed my eyes and took a second to listen to my surroundings. I could hear doctors repeatedly asking me. They were doing a field test uh, to see my sensitivity and to see where my level of paralysis might have, where I might have broken my neck, I guess, and hurt my spinal cord. Because the way that paralysis works, the higher up on your spine that you hurt is the less feeling you have in your body. I fractured my neck at the cervical, on the cervical part of the spine, C4, C5 level, which if you know numbers, 4, 3, 2, 1, it's quite high up on the scale. Um, So they kept asking me and using, they use different types of tools like pins and um, softer ended kind of like erasers to poke different parts of your body to see if you can feel it, to see if it's a numb feeling, to see if it's any feeling at all. And I was just, I felt, again, nothing. And I was trying to process so much at one time, processing why my body is just not waking up. Why aren't you waking up? And then also processing the fact that I was, I was crying, but I could hear this person, a man, weeping in the background. And I couldn't figure out who it was, if the crying was for me. And then, then the crying got louder as the person started to approach me. And it was my father, a person I hadn't seen in a very long time. And here he was, standing over me, weeping. And he just kept saying, my baby, my baby, my, oh my gosh, what happened? What has happened? And he was just bawling his eyes out. And he was absolutely hysterical. And I don't know if it was a mixture of guilt or just complete devastation. But he, besides my mother, I'd never seen anyone so emotionally distraught over anything in my entire life. I've been to funerals. I've heard of great devastation, but seeing him in that moment, I was taken aback. And I immediately sort of stopped crying and turned my direction towards him. And I'm like, thinking in my head, one part of me wants to almost console him for what I'm going through. But the other part of me is like, why are you, A, here? And why are you crying? It shouldn't have had to take something like this to unveil emotions from someone I have been wanting to care for me my entire life. And he kept trying to come closer to me and, I guess, cry and touch and be there for me. But obviously the doctors were like, sir, you please, you need to stay on the side. We need to take care of your daughter and make sure she's okay. And he was just not 
listening and kept trying to get close. And it was only when I turned towards, I couldn't even turn my neck, but I just like aimed my eyes at the nursing support. And she said, are you okay? And I told her very calmly that he needs to be moved. And I told her that I couldn't handle going through what I'm going through right now with him being right there. And I asked for my mom. And so as per my request, they told him he had to move. And he was very upset and began to cry even more. But eventually they got him away and I felt a little bit more calm, more at peace, and again started to try to process everything that's going on. And that is when I don't think I've ever heard a sound like the soul cry that was coming from my mother. It was it was as if I had died, how devastated she was when the very first time she came over me, um, she just completely broke down. And it was heartbreaking for me to witness her do that because here is a woman who is the strongest person I know, the strongest person who doesn't typically let her emotions get the best of her. And here she is completely broken because her daughter is suffering. And that image is just burned into into my brain. Like I don't, I have tried to forget it because it was so difficult to take in. And she just kept asking the doctor what was wrong. And she, the doctor informed her that we still aren't sure. Your daughter obviously has suffered a very devastating injury and we're going to try our best to figure everything out. The rest of that time from the process of my mom telling me she loves me and going back to where they wanted her to stay, that part was kind of a blur. But the next thing I knew, I was getting x-rays done and then I was I had to do a test where they had to inject some dye of some sort into uh, an IV so that they can see it better. I think I don't know if it's an MRI or a CAT scan. Um, I should know that because I've had several of them done since, but I can't remember. Whichever one of the tests you have to do to get dye injected into you, and the process of moving me from a stretcher to any kind of other bed was very difficult because they didn't want my bones to shift. And um, I remember in the process of going from the stretcher to the test with the IV, I threw up all over the doctor and on the floor and the dime had made me felt sick. And it was just one bad thing after another. And before I knew it, I was on another bed being wheeled into an operating room. And the last thing I remember hearing before the drugs took over and I fell asleep was, we are going to take care of you, Taylor. And they did. They did everything they possibly could. That surgery, which I believe was about eight hours, happened overnight and what they did was they installed this thing called a halo. Now a halo is whenever I go to schools and do motivational speaking, especially to kids, I try to explain it in the sense I'm gonna try to explain it in two different ways. One way for people who love movies, if you've seen the movie Mean Girls, at the end Regina George, she gets hit by a bus and has this thing on her head. It's like contraptions, kind of like a cage on her head. It's screwed into her skull. And uh, that, and she wore it to prom, and that's called a halo. For people who haven't seen the movie, 
think of it as this device that is connected to this really hard chessboard. Um, there's four bars, two in the front, two in the back, and a circular thing that goes around your head like a halo. And it is all screwed into place with four screws going into the front of my skull and two screws behind each ear. And what it does is it stabilizes your neck so you are unable to move. It does this so that your bones over time have the opportunity to heal into place. They had to adjust my neck and the fact that your spine is stacked on top of each other. If you've ever seen a skeleton, you would know that your spine, like I said, is stacked on top of each other. At the C4, C5 level, those two bones completely separated. And the reason why my spinal cord was injured was because one of those bones separated from the other one and actually dug into my spinal cord, cutting it. And that cut is uh, the reason why I'm paralyzed. The way your body works is your brain, this is simple terms, but the brain sends messages through the spinal cord to the rest of your body. So if you have a wire, think of your spinal cord as a wire. If that wire is cut, so is the connection. The messages from my brain to the rest of the body at that level was cut. So anything below that and where it is the message highway for the body was no longer communicating with each other because the my bone itself had cut it. So there was nothing they could do about the spinal cord, but they were able to realign my spine. And that halo was what was keeping me together. Waking up the next morning was very foggy. I was under a great deal of medication and I believe at the time I was on a mixture of morphine and I also remember taking a lot of codeine, uh, which made me very loopy and very unaware of everything. The first day waking up, I opened my eyes and I was in something called an ICU, which is an intensive care unit. And looking around, I was in a room with a baby who couldn't have been more than a year old and two other children, probably around nine years old. And there was me. When I had woken up, my mom was on the side of me and she was talking to my doctor. And I don't think they realized I had had woken up and they were talking. And the first thing I hear out of surgery was obviously paraphrasing, but ma'am, obviously, you know that your daughter has suffered a very serious injury. We last night in surgery were successfully able to, uh, put on a halo. Um, he explained to her in that conversation what the halo was for and what its intention was to do. And the fact that I'd be having it on for hopefully no more than three months. And he also told her that she needs to understand the severity of what happened. And he began to tell my mom, which I, this is something I have spent a great deal of time in hospitals and I will never understand why in your heightened sense of grief, white doctors, I know they are doing a job and I know that they have to tell you the truth, but sometimes their truth is so heartbreaking and devastating and harsh. And he said, your daughter's not going to be a vegetable, but her life is never going to be the same. Literally, those are the words that came out of his mouth. And 
I was extremely drugged up. Not knowing, understanding fully why I was still in a hospital bed. And I remember just letting out this tear, this single tear, just came out of my right eye. And my mom caught my attention and saw that and noticed I was awake. And she immediately wiped all of her tears and just looked and said to me, and she said, Taylor, I love you. I'm here. I'm here. And I go to talk and say, I love you. And that's when I first realized that I had a ventilator down my throat. For whatever reason, what happens when you have a spinal cord injury, especially if it is high, high level injury like mine, you have difficulty breathing, especially at first, because if you think about it, the muscles, if your muscles stop working and are paralyzed, you have muscles in between your ribs, in between each and every rib. And if they're not able to function properly, it obviously affects your breathing. And so apparently during my surgery, I had a great deal of trouble breathing and they needed to put me on a ventilator, which is something that happens, I think, to a lot of people who have spinal cord injuries. But it was only when I went to talk for the very first time did I realize that I had one in in my throat. And I just kind of gargled and coughed up a bit of blood. And the doctor came over me and said, introduce himself. And ironically, actually, I know it for his discretion, I think I'll keep his name out of the podcast. I don't really want to ever include people's names in something unless they're here with me. And, um, but he is a really great man and I have so much respect for him because he saved my life. But, uh, he looked over me and he said, Taylor, please try not to speak. I know you want to, but you have a ventilator in your throat and you need to let your throat heal. And, um, my mom, she wiped my tear and explained to me that some, that I had really hurt myself but that everything was going to be okay and that she loves me. She just kept telling me so many times over and over again that she loves me and that she was here for me. And I knew those things, but hearing and seeing her being there was so special and um, comforting during that time. He, the doctor then went on to continue to talk to my mom and I, and he let me know that in the next couple days, They were going to monitor me, but he wanted to, as soon as possible, get me off of the ventilator because he didn't want me to become dependent on it. My accident happened on Tuesday. So this conversation was happening on Wednesday morning or midday, and he said that by Saturday he wanted me to be off a ventilator. And he started to explain to me what happened, and he kept saying that I was paralyzed and that I needed to be in the hospital, but none of it was making sense. The terminologies he was using, like quadriplegic and um, all of those things, I didn't know beforehand and wasn't really comprehending, even at the time he was telling me. But he let me know that he, the way they had to put in the ventilator was quite different from a normal procedure and that he was nervous that when he removed it that I could possibly never talk again because it might scratch my vocal cords. Now, being a person who was extremely talkative before my accident and now obviously I think people can tell that I'm an extremely talkative person now, seeing that I have my own podcast, that was not something that was going to sit well with me. Even though I had just paralyzed my body, broken my neck, severed my spinal cord, for someone to tell me that I couldn't talk again was, I I couldn't accept that. It's like my body rejected that thought. And I just like looked at him with the most glare, like glaring eyes. And I was like that is not going to be me. I kept saying that in my head. I was like, that is not going to be me. I'm going to talk again. And he was explaining over and over again how it's a very serious thing. And I just was not listening to any of it because I couldn't accept it. And I didn't want that negative thought to go through my body. 
um, he told me, which is something I'm very grateful for, was that he was supposed to, on that Saturday, go on a family vacation trip to their cottage or something. And it was his day off and his first day off in a really long time. And he told me that because he was, he felt so emotionally attached for some reason to my case that he was going to take time on his day off to come into the hospital to be the doctor to remove it from my throat because he said it would haunt me forever if I found out that you were not able to talk because of someone removing this uh, improperly. And so a few days later, that's exactly what he did. He came in on his day off and removed my my ventilator. And that process was extremely painful. And I felt as though my throat was being scratched. And I coughed up a lot of blood. But he asked me to speak. And I was able to get out a whisper. And he said after his smile was so huge. And he said, I wasn't sure. He said at the time he wasn't sure if my voice would ever come back, but he knew that I had a voice. And one of the things he said was, girl, you are so lucky. He said, you better use that voice for good because you've been gifted it back. And to him in this moment, I hope you understand that I am trying my best and have since that day tried my best to use my voice for good. So thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. So grateful for that. Over the course of the next three weeks, I spent in hospital. During this time, we, I say we, my mom and I, because we are a team, we had the most overwhelming, incredible support. I, it was, it was, there's no other word that it's incredible. We had so many visitors on a daily basis that they had to shut down a wing on the hospital floor because there were so many people sitting and staying overnight even to just be there and be there for my mom. Most people couldn't even see me because I was in ICU for a good question of the time and they can't have different people coming in and with all the germs and everything and there was other people who could have been exposed. Tea break. There's other people who are vulnerable too. And so they would just sit there out in the lobby with my mom to show their support. My mom always brings up uh, one of my friends, uh, Veronique, who literally would be there from morning till night for days and days just to be there. And I never saw her during the time I was in the ICU again because they weren't allowing visitors for me, but she was there and be to you. Thank you. I love you so much for that. And all of my friends, my friends were so supportive and still have been to this very day. Um, very shortly after I was moved to a private room and that was when I first started to interact with my friends again. And I went through a process of coming to terms with the severity of my accident I, again, was on a lot of drugs, and there was one funny moment where it was nighttime, and I looked at my mom, and I just said, hey, mom, you know, I know that I'm hurt and all this stuff, but I just want to let you know that when I'm better, I think I'm going to retire from gymnastics, and maybe I'll join the cheerleading team in high school and just take it easy and take that as my second wind at sport, and she just looked at me like I was crazy because obviously I'm paralyzed and I'm not putting two and two together that yeah cheerleading is not really an option we have but she was extremely she played into it I was like okay Tay you can do whatever you want to do and I'm like yeah I'm gonna go back I go back to high school I'm gonna be a cheerleader I'm gonna do that maybe I'll be captain I'm gonna take it easy in life and you could see that she just realized how disconnected I was because of maybe denial combination of medication and just exhaustion. Two and two is not equaling four for me. But over the next three weeks, um, things started to make sense. And one of the hardest days was when 
they wanted to get me in a wheelchair for the first time and I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to do it A, because I hated the thought of being and sitting in a wheelchair and B, because whenever I would sit 90 degrees, because my body had gotten so used to lying down and being in a bed, my blood pressure would drop so fast that I would pass out or begin to feel nauseous. So it took quite a few days to be able to even sit at 90 degrees again. And I had to have this thing called an abdominal binder, kind of like a girdle on my stomach to help my blood pressure stay up. My legs were wrapped with these bandages to keep the blood flowing. I had nurses around the clock to do my care, whether that's brushing my teeth, helping me go to the washroom, change my clothing. And it was just such a drastic change happened literally in the blink of an eye. And I went from doing everything by myself to having everything I needed to be done for me. In those three weeks, I lost, I went from 105 pounds on the day of my accident to 85 pounds. I lost 20 pounds in three weeks. My mom, from all the stress, lost 30 pounds in three weeks. I was, in short, sick, exhausted. And there's many moments where I really just kind of gave up. I gave up on my faith and I kept questioning God and asking him why this happened to me. I was questioning what is the point of going and pushing and I was like, this is too much. I just kept thinking, this is too much. It was too much to comprehend. Every single day was a new challenge that I just didn't think I could overcome. And I couldn't understand why. The why is set in anybody who goes through anything devastating. The why is haunting. It's, it, it's that constant itch that you just can't scratch. And even now, Eight years, almost eight years later, I don't think I've fully been able to come to a conclusion as to the why, but I've made peace with it, if that makes sense. And I've made peace with my faith, and um, that was a really healing and long process for me. But after three weeks, I was taken to rehab, and... I probably will go into greater detail in the future um, about the rehab process. I was there for 19 months. During that time, there was a great deal of support, um, fundraisers, and press. I was in the news quite a few times. Uh, My story was very public. Um, And during that time, my mom worked tirelessly to build a home for me to come home to because I couldn't go back to my grandma's house because she has like a solid 10 steps to lead into her place and I couldn't walk any stairs anymore. So we needed to find a new home. My mom worked tirelessly day and night to build me a home to come home to. And again, there's a lot that happens from then to now. But in short, the timeline looks something like this. Three weeks in the hospital. 19 months at Bloorview Kids Rehab and physical rehab, getting back as much function in my body as I could, learning how to cope with my accident, Um, creating special bonds with nurses who I will never forget. The Bloorview, I could do a whole podcast on the Bloorview nurses and how special they are to me. Transitioning back to high school. A high school where in my grade nine year, I was part of a program called the Academic Program for Gifted Athletes. And going back a year and a bit later and being the only person in my entire school in a wheelchair was a lot. It was a lot. But 
the high school journey was something crazy I went through. And again, I'll talk about this more over time. Joining student council, becoming the student council president before my last year, going on to university and being a radio and television arts student. And now almost being done university and figuring out life and still trying to come to terms with everything that happened. I will never forget that day and I will never forget all of the hell that I've been through because every day I wake up and I look in my room in the corner and see a wheelchair will constantly be a reminder of that day. But I've come so far as a person, as as I say all the time, as a soul-searching young adult, and I'm just trying to find my footing in this world. And I'm so grateful for this space, this podcast space. I've done so many public speaking events, but this is the first time I'm speaking directly to um, no one, but a at the same time, everyone, letting them know how I saw things and my side of the story. And it's such a cathartic feeling, and I'm very, very grateful for it. In the next couple podcasts, um, I'm going to have some guests and some of my friends, and they're going to be a lot more lighthearted topics um, because I don't think emotionally I could do this over and over and over again, uh, explaining every step of the process, but I will over time, unveil more to my story, dealing with the darker moments in my life and the highlights and all of that fun stuff in, in between. So stay tuned for that. Uh, last week or the last podcast, I answered some questions. Here is another Q&A from my aunt. Hi, Auntie. She says, every move you make has to be calculated and planned from the time you start your day to going to bed. What are some of the challenges you face? For instance, if a caregiver doesn't show up or if an elevator breaks down and you are unable to get from point A to B. One more tea break. This is a really cool question because people, when they see someone in a wheelchair, they think, oh, they can't walk. That's, That's unfortunate. But it is so much more than that. It is... Like I said, you need help for, especially people with my injury, you need help for just about everything. And it is very, very, very frustrating. The loss of independence has been, I think, the greatest loss that I've had to deal with. I was super independent and I hate having, I don't like to ask for help. And so now having to ask for help all the time is difficult and frustrating The biggest issue, I think, is the consistency of care. Um, I'm very fortunate to live in Canada, and I'm very fortunate to live in a society where the healthcare seems to be a lot better than, I would say, most places in this world. And to know that we in Canada are better, but still there are so many issues, breaks my heart to know that someone out there is dealing with something with not even close to the level of competency that I probably take for granted some days um but again not everything is perfect and I think whenever you run into challenges like a caregiver not showing up or being stuck in an elevator it just reminds you of the fact in your reality but I just kind of try to push through and most days I try to laugh it off some days it gets the better of me and I have to cry and let that out, but the biggest challenges I face are definitely the inconsistency of care um, and not being able to be spontaneous. I'm 22 years old, and this is the stage in your life, or maybe a couple years earlier, depending, I don't know, depending on the kind of person you are, but my entire teen years, I didn't get to have the normal teen experience and going out to parties all the time and being spontaneous and doing whatever I want, whatever I want. Everything I do is planned. My girls know that if we want to do something, we need to plan it out and uh, choose a date and a time and work around everything. So 
that is the most challenging, one of the most challenging things. And uh, I think I answered the question. And the last question for this podcast today is from Adam. Hi, Adam. He's like, (laughs) petty Betty, that's what we call each other. We bicker all the time. But anyways, he says, I'm curious about the darkness. How did you feel when it first all officially hit you, when the fear became the reality? Did you ever hit the end of the, any end of the line moments? Maybe express how you get there and just how did or maybe even how do you overcome those days when the darkness wants to consume you if you still experience it? If anyone is coming from my poetry page, you know that I write about the darkness all the time. And... When it first officially hit me, I'm trying to think of the the day it officially hit me. When I was in rehab, um, physical rehab, I avoided going outside for three months. They would have daily trips outside to take the kids um, around the ground just to get fresh air. And for some reason, I was able to bamboozle and weasel my way out of going outside for three months. And I realized what had happened was I was becoming reclusive and I didn't, going outside those doors was like admitting and showing myself to the world that I am no longer Taylor the gymnast. That was such a huge part of my identity. And then all of a sudden it was gone and I could, I, I was like, who am I if I am not her? And so I think the very first day I went outside after I was pulled into a meeting with um, the child's, I don't know, the child youth worker, or I don't know what her title was. And she's like, the nurses are concerned that you haven't gone outside. And they've realized you haven't gone outside since you've gotten here. Um, And I think that first trip outside and just telling the world that I'm just Taylor, not Taylor the gymnast. It was a weird almost freeing moment to know that I am more than a sport but it was also a very jarring moment where I'm like damn this really happened to me this is really happening and um the second part of the question did you ever hit end of the line moments maybe express how you got there and how you um get overcome when the darkness comes to you um I did have a few end of the line moments where you just feel like giving up. Um, there's definitely a lot of moments and thoughts that I'm very, it's still extremely difficult to talk about publicly that I won't talk about right now. I don't feel comfortable to talk about, uh, but writing was cathartic and still is for me and when I have those days I've learned to accept the fact that I'm going to have bad days and it's okay to cry even though I've cried about the same thing that's happened eight years ago it's okay to still cry about it my accident was almost like a death for me it was witnessing the end of something the end of someone or a part of me that I can't get back and so it's okay to mourn that and um, I allow myself to cry now I used to hold it all in, but I allow myself to cry and have bad days. And once I'm done doing that, I actually, nowadays I've been better and I let some of my closest friends know, hey, you know what, I'm going through it. Give me a day. Let me be. I need space. And tomorrow will be a better day. And I allow myself to do that every so often. And also writing out my emotions is extremely helpful and helps me to overcome and when those two things don't work uh turning to friends turning to my mom and just talking it out is very helpful yeah i think this just about wraps up the second part of let me introduce myself again i think this ran a lot longer than i thought but if you made it to the end thank you like i said in the first podcast i always will end it with a poem or a quote that I feel matches the theme. This is a poem that I wrote on August 4th, 2014. 
and I was ex- I was having a very bad day. I remember how I was feeling in every piece that I write, but I especially remember this one. The poem is called Enslaved. I was having an extremely bad day, one of those days where I felt like I couldn't overcome, and I wanted to describe how trapped at times I feel with my situation. So here it is. It's called Enslaved. Bound to metal like a slave, but I am not picking cotton in the sun, being whipped for the color of my skin, or having my life taken at the hands of a person who is incapable of recognizing we all bleed the same color. But like those brave men and women, I suffer. I am the property of my diagnosis. I am a slave to a life I did not choose. My body bound in the chains of paralysis. Yeah. Yeah, that's how it ends. Um, I wanted to show how I feel like I don't want people to take this the wrong way because I know that I can't compare slavery to paralysis but like slavery I didn't choose this for myself and it's very difficult to break those chains that at times feel like they're weighing me down yeah I hope you guys enjoyed that piece I hope you enjoyed the second podcast like I said the third the next one is going to be very lighthearted, just talking about social media with my special guest, Maya, who I love and adore and is a friend of mine for a long time. So don't think you're going to come here to be sad all the time. I have many happy moments and thank you again for all of your support. If you want to follow my writing journey, you can find it on Instagram at TaylorLN underscore writes. And for all of my other social media links, you can check it out at taylorlnwrites.com, my newly revamped website. Thanks to um, Ariana and Natalie for coming and sitting with me for an entire day and helping me work on my website. I, I have no words. Again, I'm always blessed. And thank you all for listening, for your support, for your feedback. Please continue to give me that feedback because it helps to make this podcast even better. Until next time, thank you for listening. Bye.